0: And in this book club, if you haven't read the book, it's all right. Although, we hope you'll be inspired to pick it up next time you're in the library. I'm your host, Slate Kemet, and you can consider the book club rewritten because this is Club Book. This season consists of both in-person library events as well as virtual facilitated author discussions by some really great guest hosts. That will include a Q&A section with questions submitted by our virtual audience. So with that, I will turn it over to our host for this evening's event, enjoy.
1: Welcome to the Club Book with Mohsen Hamid. I'm your host, Masood Yunus, an entrepreneur and a founding member of Pakistani American Society of Minnesota. Before I introduce today's guest properly, allow me a moment to tell you a bit more about the unique series that are bringing him to to us. Club Book is a program of MELSA, the Metropolitan Library Service Agency, made possible through Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund and coordinated by Library Strategies, part of the Friends of the St. Paul Public Library. Ramsey County Library is the co-organizer of this afternoon's talk. Thanks also to partnering bookseller, Red Balloon Bookshop. Now for our featured event, British-Pakistani novelist Mohsen Hamid's international bestsellers have been translated into an astounding 40 languages. They include The Reluctant Fundamentalist and Exit West, two novels shortlisted for the Man Booker Prize and How to Get Filthy Rich in Rising Asia, which won the Tiziano tarzani International Literary Prize. Hamid is also an in-demand journalist and op-ed contributor, with a byline readily recognizable to readers of The Guardian and the New York Times newspaper. Hamid's latest book, The Last White Man, is a reimagining of Franz Kafka's classic novella, The Metamorphosis. In it, Anders, a white American, wakes up to discover that his skin has inexplicably turned a deep and undeniably brown. What's more, he's not alone. In a starred review, Kirkus calls The Last White Man a brilliantly realized allegory of racial transformation, speaking to a more equitable future. Sources as varied as Time, Entertainment Weekly, and *Ellie* named it one of the best books of summer 2022. We will have time for audience Q&A as well. Simply drop your questions in the comments thread here on Facebook and our tech manager will route them to me. With that, I'll hand it over to Mohsin Hamid. Off to you, sir. Uh,
2: Thank you, Masood. And uh, thank you, uh, everyone uh, who's been involved in putting this together. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, I'm speaking to you right now from uh, my study in in Lahore, Pakistan. Um, The the novel, The Last White Man is a pretty strange book. Um, It begins, as Masood says, with a young man named Anders. uh, And Anders has gone to bed uh, and when he went to bed, his skin was light. And when he wakes up, his skin is dark and he tries to make sense of what's going on. Why has this happened? Um, how should he interpret this? You know, what does it all mean? Uh, and he reaches out to his, uh, uh girlfriend, Una and asks her to come have a look at him. And he's hoping she'll say that, you know, you still look the same, but she doesn't say this. She says that you look like a completely different person. And um, and Anders spends some time, you know, hoping to go back to the way he was, uh, to be the person he was before, but he doesn't go back. And as time passes, um, he has to go out into the world and he finds that people are reacting to him differently. He also finds that he is different, uh, that the way that people see him affects how he is seen. And and the novel sort of explores um, a world where in a way um, race starts to disappear or our ability to recognize, you know, what race we belong to starts to disappear. Uh, It's actually set in an unnamed country. So we don't know the country um, where Anders and Una are having this experience. Uh, A lot of readers have, have read it and said, this is clearly the United States. Some other people, Um, have said that uh, uh, it feels like Britain or Norway or South Africa. Um, And in a sense, the book is open to the reader reading into it uh, the place and the situation that the reader wants to imagine this happening. Anders and Una are two of the main characters and in a way the novel is is a story of three love stories. Uh, One love story is Anders and Una. And how their relationship changes in this world where Anders has become dark, and where other people start to become dark. Uh, there's also two other love stories. One is uh, the love between Anders and his father, uh, and they're a slightly estranged pair. They haven't always got along very well. And Anders' father is sick, he's in fact dying, um, and he's trying to, in a sense, protect his son from these developments at the same time as he's grappling with um, his own mortality, and Una's love with her mother is the third relationship. Uh, Una's mother is somebody who um, has come to believe, in a way, that that white people are being erased, that um, that white people are under threat, that, uh, that that white people are no longer safe, and this transformation that starts to happen, of people becoming dark, in a way, for her at first, feels like. Um, her worst nightmares coming true. Uh, Now, Una uh, and Anders are similar in the sense that they both experienced a big loss. Um, Anders lost his mother when he was a teenager. Una lost her father at the same age. And Una's brother has has died um, just before the novel begins. And and so these are two families that are grappling with loss. And that story of, of loss, of personal loss, gets wrapped up in this sense of a loss of identity uh, and this world of turmoil as society gets upended. And uh, I guess the last thing I'll say about it is a little bit of the origin story of the book, which is, um, you know, I think that the idea to write something like this or, or, or what became the idea to write something like this goes back a little bit more than 20 years. So uh, in the year 2001, in the summer of 2001, uh, I had lived in America more than half my life. I was 30 years old, and I'd lived in Pakistan for a little bit less than half my life, in America for a little bit more than half my life. And I'd lived in, you know, cosmopolitan places, the Bay Area, Boston, New York City. I was living in New York um, in the summer of 2001. I just moved to London, in fact, in September of that year. Um, and uh, I'd gone to these sort of elite universities, I had a well paying job. Uh, And if you asked me, you know, would I have thought of discrimination as one of the main challenges that I faced in life? I would have said probably no. You know, I was aware, of course, that there was racism in America and everywhere. I was aware that um, people did face discrimination and I'd encountered discrimination myself. But by and large, living in New York City in 2001, you know, with a well-paying job um, in Manhattan, um, I felt, you know, pretty able to go about my business and do my life. Uh, Without too much encumbrance. And then the terrorist attacks of September 11th happened. And sort of almost overnight, I saw myself being viewed differently. And at the airport, you know, I would always be pulled out of line and given extra security. Um, At immigration, when I'd fly into JFK, um, they pulled me aside and and put me in a room for a few hours and asked me questions. And um, on the weekend, you get onto a bus, a little bit, you know, unshaven maybe with a backpack or the subway and people would maybe want to switch seats or look at you a bit funny. And I thought that it was so strange that, you know, um, I haven't changed. I'm exactly the same person I was yesterday and the week before and the month before that, but suddenly people are looking at me differently. And I think from that experience, I, I formed the, I guess, impression that our our the way we're seen, our race, our ethnicity, um, our, um, our appearance to other people is often imagined onto us by what other people think. Uh, when somebody looks at us and sees us in a different way, uh, we don't have to change for that to have enormous power uh, over, over their experience. And so I think um, I spent you know, quite a bit of time wanting things to go back to the way things were. You know, let's, let's go back how it was before 9-11. But then I began to ask myself, you know, why do I want that? Maybe it's better to look at this um, and to say, even if I had dodged the worst of discrimination, et cetera, before 2001, instead of wanting to be on the right side of the discrimination um, barrier, uh, maybe I need to look a bit more carefully at this whole idea of discrimination and racism myself. Uh, maybe I had been complicit in a system that perpetuates this. And instead of sort of slipping back into just a sense of comfort with it, I should, uh, I should ask myself some hard questions about what was I doing and what is this? And so when Anders experiences something uh, in a way similar, the idea that he's suddenly seen differently by people and he has to grapple with, with um, what that means and who he is, and, uh, and, and what kind of world he lived in, and what kind of world he wants to live in. In, in a weird way, uh, although this is a novel about four people who think that they're white in a small town, you know, possibly in America or someplace else, um, I do feel at the same time that it's, a, it's an imaginative journey I wanted to make because it was something I wanted to investigate from my own experience as well. So I'm gonna pause there and hopefully Masood and I can have a bit of a conversation and we can take some questions from you at the end. But, uh, but Masood, uh, over to you. Thank you very much, uh,
1: Mohsin. That was quite insightful too. Um, I read the book cover to cover um, and you know I basically read a couple of chapters over and over again too. Uh, I do have a questions, but I think we'll take some questions from our audience first. So just for the audience online here, um, you know. While you are on the while you are on the Facebook Live page, you can feel free to basically drop your uh, questions or your comments onto the Facebook note, and then we can basically uh, follow up with uh, Mossin here and ask him those questions too. I do have a few questions that have already came in, Mossin. If you are okay taking some of them now, sure, very good. So the first question is: the last white man inspiration and interplay with Franz Kafka are obvious enough. What other works influence in Hamid, with the latest book for sure, but perhaps also more
2: generally? So, um, you know, I tend to think that uh, uh, when I think of, you know, influences, the the works of literature that come to mind for me are, are they sort of fall into, I guess, three main you know, mm-hmm. areas. You know, one set of stuff is a lot of 20th century modernist writers, people like Kafka, but also like Jorge Luis Borges and um, Virginia Woolf and Calvino, um, Camus, um, who were playing with form and doing experiments about how a novel could be built and how you could twist a story and how you could make stories work in different ways. Mm -hmm. And they wrote, you know, in the 1920s, they wrote 20s to, let's say, 60s, 70s even, but mid-20th century. Um, early to mid-20th century. They were writing in a time of war, in a time of technological change, in a time of uh, terrible violence. Uh, and in a, in a sense, their time is not maybe that different from our time. We also live in a time of real uh, dramatic change. And so I think the modernists, to me, remain interesting. Now, the second, I guess, bunch of writers um, uh, were, were writers that I encountered in my you know, late teens and 20s, um, uh, politically minded writers, often from the global south or African-American writers. And um, I would think here of people like uh, Chinua Achebe and um, Tony Morse and James Baldwin. um, From Pakistan, Salthazen Manto, uh, uh, very important uh, Urdu language writer. Um, And these writers in a sense, in different ways, we're um, exploring how to uh, deal with a very troubling political reality, you know, through fiction. And um, and I've always been fascinated by some of their experiments and by many of their books. And and the last group of writers that um, I've I guess always been attracted to, influenced by, um, are are the Sufi poets. So uh, in, in the sort of Muslim literary tradition, uh, there's a, what you might call a, a sort of a mystical strand um, of, of poetry where the relationship between human beings and the divine is often talked about in terms of love stories. Um, and, uh, and so these love stories um, by poets like Rumi, uh, poets like uh, Atta, um, these, uh, uh, these love stories would often, um, explore the relationship between people, the universe, um, through the story, through a, a story of, of, of love. And, um, I've always been interested in that idea of, of sort of love as a transformative element. And in a way, this novel is, is built in a sense of three such love stories. But yeah, those are, I guess, would be my three immediate influences that come to mind.
1: Very good, thank you Mohsin. Um, just for our audience those listening in, uh, that, or maybe you just tuned into our Facebook Live. Uh, you know, simply drop your questions in the comment thread here on Facebook, and our tech manager will rock them to me. If you had preferred to contribute a question a bit more anonymously, you can also send a private message to Club Book here on Facebook or send an email to clubbookmn at gmail.com. Thank you. Mosin, you talked about um, Sufism there a little bit too, right? So there is, uh, you know, me, uh, I being Pakistani descent as well, right? I'm I'm, I'm inspired by the Kalam of Baba Bulesha, for example, right? Um, there is Sufism that actually stretches all the way from Pakistan, India, all the way up to Turkey, right? Are there any international Sufis or any international personalities that also inspire your work?
2: Uh, you mean to like a Sufi tradition or just general? Sufi tradition. Well, you know, I mean, there's so many. So um, within the Sufi tradition, there have come uh, lots of, I guess, offshoots. So um, when I was growing up, uh, uh, I remember uh, hearing Nusrat Fateh perform and, and meeting him uh, live once. And Nusrat Fateh Khan was a was a you know one of the great uh, Pakistani singers. He was a a kawal. and kavadi is um is a, I guess a form of what you might call devotional music. I, in American terms, I think um, you know maybe uh, I'm not sure gospel is quite the right way to compare it, but it's. It's music of that nature. um, Music that touches the spirit um, and uh, uh, and is sort of ecstatic. And one thing which I thought that Nusrat Fateli did beyond his, um, you know, his amazing uh, uh, performances and his willingness in a way to collaborate with all kinds of musicians all over the world um, was that he was intent on uh, playing with form. Uh, At some point, he was comfortable moving beyond uh, traditional into all sorts of other different experiments. And whether that's, you know, with Peter Gabriel or Eddie Vader or, um, you know, on uh, some remix soundtrack out of Britain, um, uh, I thought there was something quite incredible about uh, taking this this, uh, traditional uh, form with ancient roots. Um, and moving it into all of these unexpected new directions. And so he's certainly somebody who comes to mind in terms of a more contemporary. Uh, uh, I don't know if influence is, is quite the right word, but inspiration.: Very good. Thank
1: you, Melsin. We have a question here from the audience. What is your training as a writer? Your style particularly in this latest best? It starts in the most beautiful day. No sentence does not land, and each word has a purpose. That's what makes me curious.
2: So, uh, you know, like any writer, I guess I I began um, as a kid, you know, reading and uh, and I used to read a lot and uh, um, I probably did my first, I suppose, attempt at writing a book when I was in third or fourth grade in one of these class notebooks where I doodled out a kind of uh, imitation of Star Wars, some kind of, you know. Uh, galactic space opera with little stick figure illustrations and spaceships and all this kind of stuff. Um, but I never took it, I guess, particularly seriously, thinking that I would be a writer. Um, I read a lot. Uh, I also had a very active imagination. So I was always, you know, in a fantasy world, like imagining stuff and, and dreaming of stuff. Um, and then when I got to university in the States, I, uh, uh, I went to Princeton and um, there's a woman down the hall who told me she was taking this creative writing class, and I said, "You know, what do you mean?" And she said, "Well, um, you write short stories, you know, for class, a few short stories." And uh, uh, and I said, "Wait, so you the entire class is you just write a few short stories? That's all you have to do, and you get a regular university credit?" She says, "Yeah," and by the way, it's also pass fail. And I thought, "Wow, that sounds like a very like fun and interesting." Uh, thing to do. So I'm going to try to do that. So I wound up taking um, a total of four creative writing classes while I was at Princeton. And um, uh, the first one in my, my first year, and then I took, uh, I think, uh, one in my second and one in my third. Uh, my second and third classes were with, with Joyce Oates, who was a fantastic teacher and a fantastic writer. Um, and then in my senior year, um, I, I took a long fiction class that was offered by Toni Morrison mm-hmm. and, and she would pick a, a, I don't know what it was maybe five or six students uh, maybe four or five students um, each year and the idea would be instead of writing short stories you'd write one longer piece and so I spent the entire semester writing the entire first draft of my first novel so I think she wanted to get like 50 pages and I handed in 200 pages for her to read uh, but she was, you know, an incredibly uh, uh, generous teacher. She read the whole thing. She gave me her notes. Um, she was very helpful. And, uh, uh, and, you know, there were a couple of things that she said that have, that have stayed with me. Um, you know, one of the things was that she would read our work out loud every day, uh, every class, once a week we'd meet. And when she read our stuff out loud, it sounded so amazing. You know, she was she, she was one of the you know great writers of the 20th century, but she was also um, probably the greatest reader I've ever met. So she could read our you know work, and suddenly you thought, "Wow, this has real power. This is really something." And something which I took away from that class was uh, to read my stuff out loud um, over and over again. So in a typical writing day. I wander around uh, uh, the room I'm writing, um, typing in my computer maybe for an hour or two. But for three or four hours, I'm pacing around with a printout of my book, um, reading it out loud over and over again. And I think that the way that writing works is that we imagine that we're getting writing through our eyes, that it's something that we see, um, that most of us you know, uh, will, will read books in, in print or electronic form. But I think that language works to our ears. It works in terms of how it sounds. And, and, so, um, and so very quickly, my approach to writing became a, a very oral approach. And, and the questioner was asking about the sentences and how they work. And so there are these long sentences in the book. And, and the way these sentences, I imagine these sentences working is that um, they build up certain rhythms, And hopefully those rhythms take you along. And if you encounter an idea that you find strange or unsettling, or you don't agree with, the sentences keep going. You don't get to pause and stop at that point. You keep going to the end of the sentence, which might be quite some distance away. And by the time you can stop and reflect on what's happened, in a sense, you've already taken it on board. And and that idea of sort of moving forward, of of slipping from one idea to the next, of, of, of raising an idea and then playing with it, and then accepting it, changing it, I think that's quite true to how we are as people. You know, we we uh, often, if we're allowed to, in our private space, sort of think about things. We'll have an idea and then we'll think, no, that's not quite right. And then we'll think, that's not quite right. We'll, we'll keep playing with it. It's only when we say, this is my idea. And we say it publicly that we feel like we have to die by that idea. Like That's our idea. We can't change our mind. And so in a sense, this is a novel really about um, changing perspective and, and changing one's mind. and the characters changing their minds and, and the sentences are built, hopefully, to facilitate that. Wilson,
1: very good. Thank you very much. That was quite interesting. And it's a good segue to our next question as well, which is, did the first sentence come to you fully formed or require wordsmithing? Did you write it first thing or did it come later? I feel it has the ring of something iconic. The only parallel I can think of is J.R.R. Tolkien, in a hole in the ground there lived a hobbit.
2: Um, so the, the, the first sentence um, uh, was where the book began. And uh, uh, in a sense, the first sentence, um, I knew what I wanted to happen in the beginning of the book. And I knew where he wanted it to go. And what I might just do here, just to pause for a quick second, is just to read that first sentence for you know, people mm-hmm. uh, who are listening who haven't, haven't heard it. It's a pretty long sentence, but well actually I'll read the first two sentences inside if you don't mind. Absolutely. One man, here we go. One morning, Anders, a white man, woke up to find he had turned a deep and undeniable brown. This dawned upon him gradually, and then suddenly, first as a sense as he reached for his phone that the early light was doing something strange to the color of his forearm. Subsequently, and with the start, as a momentary conviction that there was somebody else in bed with him, male, darker. But this, terrifying though it was, was surely impossible. And he was reassured that the other moved as he moved, was in fact not a person, not a separate person, but was just him, Anders, causing a wave of relief. For if the idea that someone else was there was only imagined, then of course, the notion that he had changed color. Was a trick too, an optical illusion or a mental artifact born in the slippery halfway place between dreams and wakefulness except that by now he had his phone in his hands and he had reversed the camera and he saw that the face looking back at him was not his at all." So that's how the book begins. There's a, there's a first sentence which is like a line and a half, there's a second sentence which sort of takes us for the rest of the page and onto the next page. Um, the first sentence, I guess, sets up a little bit of the rhythm and the tone, and it introduces this very strange development, I'm uh, right at the beginning, that we know that Andres has sort of changed. The second sentence then takes that and um, and sets up the rhythm of the language. And so hopefully those first two sentences, which, which constitute the first paragraph of the book, do a couple of things. They... Introduce the reader to the idea that this is a novel where the main character suddenly changed color and where people are going to do that. Um, because there's a certain contract, I think, between the writer and reader, a certain understanding. Um, and, and in a way, it's, you know, the first sentence says, this is the kind of book this is going to be. And the second sentence then takes that and kind of flows with it. And just is thinking one thing, then the other, and he's looking, he's looking again. And, and the second sentence, I, in a sense, is presenting the reader with, this is how this book is going to flow. And so, in a way, the two sentences together functions as a kind of introduction. It's like when you meet somebody for the first time, and they say, you know, my name is Wilson, and here's something about me. And, and, and you do the same thing. And so that's really, uh, you know, how I thought about those. But in terms of where they come from, and um, the first sentence, as you say, you know, it really was my way into the book. And once I had that first sentence, I had a way in. And, and once I had the first two sentences, I, I sort of felt like I had a book coming. Um, and, and it didn't change much thereafter. Once they once they were written, they, they stayed like that, um, with minimal change uh, until the book was done.
1: Beautiful. Um, I do have a question from the audience too, but I we received questions ahead of time as well, a few questions. I'm just going to Since we are in continuation of the conversation, I'm going to pose that question and then I'll come to one of the audience questions here too. So the question is, I don't know where this book is set and realized only afterwards that may be the point. Was this ambiguity a conscious choice from page and draft one or a decision you came to later? Why?
2: Yeah, it was a conscious choice. And I think it has to do something with um, what I think written fiction can do. So right now, you know, we have three main um, mass uh, reproduced storytelling forms. You know, we have cinema and television, which are kind of merging now because we stream our films on our TVs. But we have cinema and television are the two most, I guess, popular forms. And and the third form really is, is, you know, is books. Um, It's written fiction. Now what cinema and television do is they give you a world that looks like the world. So in a film of us meeting, Masood would look like Masood, and I would look like me, and the room where we met would look like a room, and the tea we were drinking would look like tea, and you hear us speaking, and it would be a lot like the actual world that we live in, or that we think that we live in, and you're a viewer of that. But the book is nothing like that. In a book, you basically see letters, spaces, and punctuation marks against a white background. It looks nothing like the world. It doesn't sound like the world. Um, It is this strange thing. And then you, the reader, take this sort of source code and you take it into your imagination. And suddenly your imagination creates this experience. The reader of a book isn't like the viewer of a film. The viewer of a film, in a sense, is a viewer. The reader of the film is the casting director, the cinematographer, the director, the location scout um, of, of, of the book, uh, which is why when we read the book two different people, we might have two very different senses of what it would look like. And we could see a film that's adapted from that book. One of us would say, oh, that's a lot like the book. And the other one would say it's nothing like the book because we imagined it differently. And I think, I think it's quite a special thing. I think that, um, that this um, ability or invitation to readers, to imagine, uh, to create a story out of their imagination is really what's very special about written, written literature. And I think what novelists do is we don't actually write novels. We write these kind of half novels and readers take these half novels and they make them in their imagination into full novels. And since I think that's the case, what I often try to do in my books is I try to write you know, sort of small books that leave a lot of space for readers to imagine. So in The Last White Man, only two characters have names, Anders and Una. The other characters don't have names. Um, The place is not named. The town isn't named. Uh, A lot of what's happening isn't really described. You know, we see close up what's happening to Anders and Una um, and their father, his father and her mother. But we, we don't see too much of the societal change happening in the backdrop. We get little glimpses of it. And what I think that does is it frees up the reader to imagine it um, in their own way and, and in the novel, one thing which I was very I guess particular about doing was I wanted there to be four main characters, all of whom begin the novel you know thinking that they're white, and there would be no character who was you know brown or black um, uh, who would really have a large role. and the reason for that was I didn't want to create a character where I could sort of say, "This is what I think about what's going on." this is what I the writer think is, is correct or good or morally, um, uh, morally upright. And I didn't want to give a character the reader could look to and say, how is this person reacting to this? How, how am I supposed to interpret this? This person is going to be a clue. The reader is forced to sort of imagine this thing themselves. And, and then what happens hopefully is the reader says, oh, wait, I imagined this. Um, What does that mean? You know, what, why did I imagine it this way? And how did that make me feel? I think the subject of race is something that makes all of us uncomfortable. It's an uncomfortable domain. And so I think being able to sit by ourselves, you know, in complete solitude, uh, alone, having this kind of imaginative experience around race and then seeing what that made us feel and what that brought out in us is a way to, I guess, explore something um, that we have very little, uh, I guess, comfort or freedom to explore when we're with other people. Or we have a different kind of comfort and freedom with other people. And so in the same way that two children can get together and say, look, let's play pirate or let's play house. And then they start, "Or oh, let's play dinosaurs. And suddenly they stop being children and they become, you know, two women in a house or they become two pirates or they become a T-Rex and uh, a Brontosaurus or whatever. And um, in the same way that children do that, I think that readers and writers, well particularly readers, enter this imaginary world. So that's why the novel is written in that way, and it, it leaves those kind of spaces uh, for readers to fill.
1: How did the idea of this book came to you? I have heard you interview talk about the origin story for the reluctant fundamentalist and how 9/ 11 shaped your experiences in America and inspired your writing. Does this latest novella feel equally personal?
2: Yeah, in a way it does. I guess, you know, there are a couple of experiences in it that feel quite close. You know, one experience I think, um, in a sense, does go back to 9-11. And, uh, and and that idea of suddenly perceiving a shift in a sense of what group one belongs to uh, and what that group means to other people. And um, and so in The Nocturne Fundamentalist, it, that novel deals very specifically with this encounter between, um, sort of a Westernness and a Muslimness um, that are mutually suspicious. Uh, They may not even exist, but they, in the novel, are sort of presented in a way where it's very easy to imagine that they are in opposition, uh, even though the novel kind of, again, leaves it to the reader to to believe that. Not much happens in the novel that makes it clear that that's actually a real tension. But the tension begins to build because we're already scared of each other. but in this novel, I wanted it not to be specifically about the sort of, you know, sort of Muslim Western split, but really about this feeling um, of, uh, of race and of uh, a sense of loss that so many people around the world are feeling as various dominant groups are challenged. And so whether this is um, in Pakistan, people who feel that a traditional way of life or traditional understanding of Islam is being challenged by contemporary life, whether it's in India, the rise of sort of Hindutva and and the notion of a politicized Hinduism uh, uh, and and Muslims being sort of uh, the opposition or in Turkey, the idea of a kind of uh, resurgent Turkishness or in Putin's Russia, the idea of a resurgent, you know, uh, Russianness. And you see that in Brexit Britain, you see it in American politics very clearly the last few years in particular, all over the world, you see Groups feeling like their way of life, their group is under threat. Something is being lost. And that creates a kind of nostalgic politics where so we say, um, where some people tell us that, you know, we should go back to how things used to be. It was better 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago, or 500 years ago, or 1,000 years ago. And all of these politicians would tell us, let's go back to the better day. I think are playing on a sense of nostalgia that we have because we feel that things are changing very quickly and we feel that we're losing something. And so what I wanted to do in this novel was to really take very seriously this question of loss, this idea of what does it feel to be losing something? And to write about these four characters, losing things in in different ways, losing loved ones, um, losing their youth, uh, losing, in a sense, their belonging to a particular group, um, and to see if it's possible to, in a sense, explore that feeling of loss, but come to a different endpoint than the endpoint of going back to the past. And um, and so, yeah, that I think was 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 very much, I guess, the, um, the underlying impetus to to write the book.
1: So it's a personal experience that one of our audience is sharing, I can definitely relate to the experience of being singled out based on your looks. Years ago, after graduating from college, I visited Prague, Czechoslovakia in 1985. I recall being given double takes, finger pointing, and the sheer awe of Czech citizens seeing me, a black American woman, casually sauntering through their city. At the time, it was a bit unsettling, but I didn't detect any malice, just surprise. How would you speak to the reception you are greeted with now and in the past?
2: So I think that um, it's very interesting. You know, we we can react to difference. And we can react to people that we think of as different from ourselves in very different ways. And I think a lot of it depends on the stories we choose to believe. So um, one story is, you know, that in a sense, people are on, um, on various human journeys that are similar and different and, um, and in a sense, bounded in the individual, um, but that there are ways that we can think of our journeys as being um, the journeys of, of relatives, that, you know, that person maybe speaks a different language, but they're also a parent. Um, that person you know, has a different color skin from me, but they've also lost a loved one. Um, that person you know, doesn't speak my language, but, uh, uh, but they also are a writer and I'm a writer. Or well, this person next to me is you know, Japanese and I'm Pakistani and we're sitting in this restaurant, but we both like sushi. And you, know, you start thinking about these stories and you can imagine a way into, um, in a sense, the differences that, that we can use to divide ourselves. You can imagine those just being in a sense, different facets of our, of our uh, identity, but not the most important facet in the moment. Maybe being parents is more important. Maybe liking like sushi is more important. Maybe being writers is more important. But if we have different kinds of stories, stories that tell us that there's a group of people who hates our kind of people and uh, is a threat to our kinds of people, then very quickly, those threatening stories take us down um, a road where we overlook the fact that we're both parents and that we're both writers and we both like sushi. And suddenly it becomes, oh, this is that kind of person. And um, in most countries, there will be a a history of of groups being persecuted precisely on this basis for a long period of time. And whether that's Muslims in contemporary uh, India or or non-Muslim minorities in contemporary Pakistan, or African Americans in America, or, uh, you know, uh, Catholics in uh, uh, when, the, when the British had, had colonized uh, Ireland. Um, these these instances where we create a hierarchy of groups and put people into other groups has, has gone on for a very long time. Um, and it has, you know, more and less horrifying forms. Um, uh, some of the most horrifying forms uh, which we see around us and have seen throughout history are almost unimaginably horrifying. And, and part of the question becomes, you know, how do we find our way out of this? Um, because, because you know, race, for example, is an imaginary thing, right? Like races don't actually exist. Um, you know, there, there are uh, uh, mountains and clouds and, you know, uh, zebras, those things exist. But race is something that we've kind of imagined into existence. Several hundred years ago, um, during the, the Christian reconquest of Spain, um, when the Catholic uh, kings and queens were, we re- re- Spain, which had been um, uh, under the rule of, of Muslim kings and queens for many centuries. Um, At that time, the main question being asked was, wasn't, are you African or European? Uh, Are you black or white? It was, are you Christian or are you a Muslim or a Jew? Um, And then when the reconquest was, you know, was was nearing its completion, there was a question of, okay, well, what if people are pretending to be Christians? You know, how do we know that they're really Christians? And then it became, well, maybe if they're descended from Jews or they're descended from Muslims, um, they're not really Christians. And we need to look into into their background more closely. And then that becomes a kind of racialization. But the ancient Greeks wouldn't have thought of race the way we think of race today. Neither would the ancient Chinese or the ancient Indians. you know, the, the modern idea of, of race, uh, of the colonial period and, and of, of American history is, is, you know, a few centuries ago. And I think it's quite reasonable to imagine that a few centuries from now, it won't exist. We'll have different ways of thinking about each other. So, um, so I think that, uh, uh, you know, for me, um, the idea of, of a story or many stories uh, told by many people where we destabilize race, but we sort of pretend that it's starting to buckle, starting to shimmer, starting to become unstable. It's interesting and useful for us to do because um, if we can move away from the stories that we tell about people being of different races and there being a hierarchy of races, um, and we can move away from the stories that tell us to be frightened of people who are different from us, there's hopefully more potential for us um, to move into a a better future or so I think. Very good, Amit
1: we got another interesting question here too. I know the book is still relatively new, but I'm curious if Mr. Hamid has any ideas yet of how the book and its central thought exercise about race and identity has been received differently in different countries and cultures. If it is too early to know this, where the last white man is concerned, then I would pivot to ask how the reluctant fundamentalist has been received differently in different parts
2: of the world. Thank you for your time. So with the last white man, it's still very soon. Um, but I think, you know, more than in different countries and cultures, I think different readers react differently to books. I think partly that's because different readers make different books in their imagination. So two different readers reading this book are going to make two different books out of it, uh, depending on how they imagine. Um, also, Uh, uh, Of course, people have different views, different politics, etc. So, you know, there are some uh, people who've reacted to The Last White Man by saying that this book, in a sense, tries to empathize with racism and it excuses racism. (laughs) Um, uh, Other people have said that it's, you know, uh, who are you to try to write these characters? Um, Other people have said that this, in fact, is a racist book, and it is advocating, you know, um, the erasure of uh, of white people, etc., um, and I think in many ways those reactions are the reactions that people have had, in a sense, to their experience of reading the book. Um, but there are other people who have different reactions and uh, who have found the book helpful or interesting or provocative in a in a good way, uh, or moving or or useful or worthwhile. And and I think the same thing was true of certain fundamentalists, is that. Reading in a way isn't a team sport. You know, we we do it individually. And so to think that there's an American response to this book, or there's an American response to Latin fundamentalists, or a Pakistani response to these two books, I think is a mistake because different Pakistanis read in different ways. You know, I still remember um, uh, these these two young men, this young man coming to me at this literary festival in Karachi uh, and asking about. Latin fundamentalist saying, you know, my friend and I are big fans of 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 Maud Smoke, your first book, and uh, and we um, really looking forward to Latin fundamentalist, and so, um, but unfortunately, we were very disappointed, and so we I bought a ticket to come and give you this letter uh, by bus, by many hours from where we live, and <laughs> this letter, and and what we were disappointed was we really thought that you know Moth Smoke was a very sexy book, and it had these you know great sex scenes and you know, now, doesn't isn't like that at all. And you really let down your readers. And, and you know, I mean, it, it's interesting, right? Like, you know, so uh, is that a typically Pakistani reaction? No, but there's no such thing. as a typically Pakistani reaction. And, uh, and, and I think so for me, what I learned as I travel around the world, um, uh, you know, with, with my books, is just how different people are within one country and even one city and even one family um uh you know sometimes i sit with my parents and my sister discussing a book and we'll have completely different reactions to it so so yeah i think there's a, there's a wide range of reactions um but uh but hopefully you know it, it does seem that some people seem to find it um uh, you know useful to them
1: very good we got four more questions and about 10 minutes left was we'll so let's see if we can cruise through those um did you write the manuscript during the pandemic? While the themes are different, the reaction of characters to a global and scary changes is resonant with COVID-19. holding up in one's house, suicides, many people soldiering up, and so forth.
2: Yeah, it was written. Uh, I mean, it, 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 I, I, it was written largely during the pandemic. And in many ways, for me, it was a kind of pan- pandemic novel. Uh, it's, it's a novel where um, you begin to know that something is happening in the distance. And then it happens to one person in the community, then a few, then it begins to spread. And people are panicking, and you don't know how bad things are gonna be- get. Will society break down? You know, will we, um, you know, will we uh, uh, have a complete descent into chaos and violence? <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, and like the pandemic in a way that it, it sort of, uh, <clears throat> ebbs and flows um but also one thing the pandemic i think did was the pandemic um ripped open this illusion that what we call reality is how things really are if you'd said to us before any of us before the pandemic that oh next year your kids won't be going to school and flights between countries will be closed and and, um you know you'll be only talking to people on your computer and not meeting them in person and, uh, you know, you would say, this crazy. Of course, it's not going to happen. But it did. And so, in a way, the novel is like that. It's about something which seems impossible. But, uh, but in the time of the pandemic, a lot of impossible things happen. So maybe it's not so impossible. Beautiful, Mohsen.
1: I'm going to ask you a last question about the book. And that's my question. I have the book right in my hand here, too. I made some notes there. So chapter number 13, the last... A paragraph and I'm going to read some excerpts here. And Andrew's pale father was the only pale person present, the only pale person left in the entire town, for there were by that point no others. And then his casket was closed and his burial was occurring. And he was committed to the soil, comma, the last white man, comma. And after that, after him, there were none. So the entire book, as you mentioned earlier on too, there were just two characters that were named, Anders and Una, no one else has been named, no places have been named, right? But I find this quite interesting that at the end of this chapter number 13, yeah, there's one last word here, there are a few words here that resonates with the title of the book, The Last White Man. Was that on yes. purpose?
2: Yeah, very much so. So in a way, in the novel, the, the last person who can be thought of as, as looking like they are white. Is Anders' father. Mm-hmm. Um, he's dying in the course of the novel. And you know, who knows if he had if he had lived, perhaps he too would have changed. We don't know what would have happened to him. But um, but Anders' father is is desperately trying to pass something on to his son. He's trying to give his son something. And Anders is is trying to, in a sense, connect with his father. And and the feeling of of loss that Anders is having is, is the loss not just. Um, of his own skin color, his own racial identity. But it's also the loss of this man, his father, and um, in a sense, his ancestry, where he comes from. And I think that uh, that for me, their relationship um, and Anders' father's attempt to to give to his son something even in his dying, to convey a sense of dignity. Um, and, and in a sense, uh, to reassure his son um, that, that he can face this, um, is, 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 is the gift that his father is trying to give him. And, and these two men, you know, one of whom is the last of his kind in a sense, and one is the one who has to live afterwards. Um, to me, there's something very much about this, this nature of the moment that we live in today, where so many people feel that they're losing uh, their identity. And, and that, that is, I think, encapsulated in the relationship between these two
1: very good uh, last two questions <clears throat> what Pakistani authors would you recommend to a reader who has devoured all your books and the backlist of Nadim aslam as well what are your yourself what are you
2: yourself reading now so Kabla Shamsi is a wonderful writer she has a new novel that's just come out I think last week um, uh, and very much worth reading uh, Daniel Moinuddin is a, a superb uh, uh, writer and has a, a collection of short stories a second book I think will be out uh, in a year or two, but, um, but his collection of short stories in other rooms, uh, other wonders is, is absolutely fantastic. Um, Muhammad Hanif is uh, an incredible uh, uh, writer, both as a journalist and also um, has, a, has a sort of wickedly dark sense of humor, writes fantastic, um, uh, politically incisive fiction. Uh, maybe I would recommend his first book, uh, A Case of Exploding Mangoes. Um, you know, and and there's so many others. I assume that the uh, the reader there, the, the questioner there, is, is uh, um, uh, somebody who wants to read in English. But in the English language, those would be some of the writers that I would recommend.
1: Very good. most well, in the last question of the day, and we have about four minutes. What can you tell us about the film of, about the film adaptation of Exit West? So, what is Mr. Hamid's? What is, what is Mr. Hamid's role with the project? How did you learn that Netflix and the Obamas were interested in Exit West? I bet that's a fun story.
2: Yeah, well, you know, it, 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 <laughs> it, it's, it, it is, I guess, a fun story. So um, uh, uh, there, was a, there was a whole journey involved where um, in, in, first um, uh, I was approached by uh, the production company uh, Agbo, which was um, set up by the Russo brothers who were behind uh, many of the, uh, Avengers, uh, uh, films, um, and, uh, um, and then, uh, by, uh, Higher Ground Productions, which is the Obama's, uh, production company, um, and, uh, and also, uh, uh, Riz Ahmed, um, who was a friend and who, uh, was, was the star of, uh, Dutton Fundamentalist, brilliant, uh, British-Pakistani, uh, actor, um, uh, who, who got involved in, in helping to shape the project. Um, and it's been moving through this process of trying to find the right screenplay of trying to bring it to life in the right way. And, uh, you know, it, it's interesting because in a way, as I said before, I write these novels that leave a lot of space for people to imagine them differently. And then time to make a film. Um, it's very challenging. Because, you know, how do you want to imagine this? Like, what do you want to make out of it? So um, at this stage, the project is um, going through different screenplays and and you want to just come in and hopefully that one is going to be the one that sticks. I think everybody would be keen um, to do it next year. But, you know, as I've learned in the film uh, sort of business, the little that I know of it is that, uh, you know, uh, you never quite know. Uh, when things are going to go ahead. But I think, you know, it, it's, it's exciting and, and, and I, hope that, I hope that it does go ahead next
1: year. Well, Wilson, any final thoughts for the audience? You got about a minute?
2: No, it's, a, it's been a pleasure. Um, uh, I've always enjoyed my uh, visits to uh, Minnesota in the past. Um, one of my best friends is a native uh, Minnesotan. Uh, he's from uh, Minnesota and he's also a Native American. <laughs> Um, uh, the writer, David Troyer. Um, and so if any of you haven't read David's stuff, um, he's an incredibly, uh, fine, uh, novelist. And I would suggest, uh, I was just picking him up. Well, we'll absolutely
1: love to stay in touch, Mosin. Next time you're in Minnesota, make sure we connect.
2: <laughs> I would like thank you. Thank you, Mosin.
0: That wraps up our Ramsey County Library event with Mosin Hamid. Make sure to catch our next Club Book Podcast with Kristen Harmel. Historical fiction phenom, Kristen Harmel, is the number one international best-selling author behind book club favorites, The Sweetness of Forgetting, and The Book of Lost Names. Her latest, The Forest of Vanishing Stars, breathes life into another little-known chapter of World War II in Eastern Europe. Visit us online at clubbook.org for details on past and present seasons, sign up for our e-newsletter, check out our calendar, and so much more. Stay up to date with all of our events at our Clubbook Facebook page. If you're on Twitter, find us using the handle clubbookmn. And if you enjoy these free Clubbook events and podcasts, remember to share them with your friends. They just may too. Thanks again to all those who make Club Book possible, including MELSA, Library Strategies, and Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Our sponsors include Minpost and Red Balloon Bookshop, where you can purchase all the books featured in Club Book. Finally, a very special thank you to all the libraries hosting events this season. That's it for Club Book, the coolest club in town. We'll see you at the library.